is Sermon Smith, a conversation about the craft of sermon preparation. And my name is John Chandler. Welcome back once again. Welcome back after a bit of a long break, a longer break than I anticipated. Uh, but excited to get, be getting back into some rhythms here for Sermon Smith. Uh, even in the midst of some of my um, broken up scheduling of podcast interviews and publishing for them here, I'm finding that uh, this podcast keeps growing. So thank you for that. I actually intended to publish this uh, particular podcast uh, in December, and that's when it was recorded. And then I discovered that our server was actually starting to break because we were outgrowing it because of the traffic, especially from um, feed subscribers through your podcast players. So that's good news. Uh, But I ended up moving the site to a new server and then found out it was too much for that server as well. And so now I've moved it to another server that seems to be working pretty well for us. And I think we'll be able to scale a little bit better as the podcast continues to grow. So we are up and running, still have a few glitches on the website itself. But for those of you who've reached out on Twitter, uh, for those of you who have wondered even internally, uh, that's what's been going on with the site. I, I'll get back to it and work out some of the glitches, but everything's navigable and you should be able to like hear this podcast because all that side of things should be working. So just want to let you know what's going on with that. Still trying to find what the rhythm will be for Sermon Smith. I'm not planning to do it bi-weekly uh, for the short term because I do have some other projects in the works around Sermon Smith that don't involve fixing broken parts of the website, but actually moving things forward. Okay, enough of that. Let's get into today's interview, uh, which was, I mean, it was a good one. I say it every time, but this one was a good one. This is Donnell Weich. Donnell is the senior pastor at Vineyard Church of Ann Arbor. I heard uh, Donnell, I think I mentioned this in the, in the interview, but I, I heard Donnell on a panel uh, last spring at the Missio Alliance National Gathering and just made a note that this was a guy that I wanted to get on the podcast and so reached out to him this fall and got it all scheduled. Uh, I trust that you will uh, appreciate Donnell. It's, it's evident and clear. Uh, he has a passion for preaching that he and I share We didn't even go into the obvious shared passion that he and I have also just for all things technology. Um, He he certainly surpasses me in that area, probably just like he does in preaching as well, which just makes this interview interesting for me too. So here we are with Donnell Weich of Vineyard Church of Ann Arbor in Michigan. Let's let's jump in here. Why don't you tell us, Donnell, about Ann Arbor Vineyard? Tell us about the church where you pastor. Yeah, the, it, that was a, a interesting sort of reflection because you spend so much time in your community when you have to sort of think about talking about it outside the community. Uh, it can be sort of interesting to figure out like, oh, what am, what am I going to highlight about our community? So uh, our church is about a 40-year-old church uh, started in the mid-70s here in Ann Arbor, a couple good guys uh, meeting in a a dorm room at the University of Michigan campus uh, for fellowship and communion, then moved uh, from there into the uh, living room of the founding pastor and his wife, and then from there joined the ecumenical charismatic renewalist movement that was happening here in Ann Arbor in the 70s and uh, sort of catching the tail end of the Jesus movement. They connected up with, I don't know, about seven or eight other local congregations to create something called the Word of God community. Uh, Maybe the Sword of the Spirit and the Word of Life uh, might be things that are familiar to some folks around that. And uh, from there, grew, uh, uh, sort of outgrew the living room, the house church model, started to rent 
some local uh, schools and colleges and then found an old Methodist church that was for sale in a community about 10 miles south of Ann Arbor called Milan. And then the church exploded in the 90s to about 900. And we planted two churches, one in Milan and one here in Ann Arbor, in a former civic theater, which was before that a former roller rink. And we still have the original hardwood floor for the roller <laughs> wow. rink. So that's a lot of fun. And the coach's office um, lettering we retained. And so as we tell the story of our church, we also like to tell the story of the building because the building has a story as well. And our church is made up of folks who live here uh, in and around uh, Ann Arbor and Washtenaw County. So we're sort of a, a regional church. We have people who uh, connect with us as far as away as 30 to 45 miles, Wow, uh, which is a bit surprising for me. And I, I actually wrestle with uh, as a local church pastor because I struggle with how they're going to connect in with community. But the Lord's been teaching me something about that, which is uh, he sends people to us. And part of our task is to receive them uh, gladly. And so we try to blend a lot of things. Um, uh, Phyllis Tickle, the first religion editor for Publishers Weekly, uh, in her uh, sort of book, I think it was the coming emerging Christianity or something along those lines. I'm, I'm getting that title wrong. Sure. But um, she she talked about uh, sort of the four quadrants of faith. So what we would call the liturgical quadrant, uh, the social justice quadrant, the evangelical quadrant, and the renewalist or Pentecostal quadrant. And so we're a church that tries to take um, some of the treasures from each of those uh, quadrants and then blend them into our community. So we are the home of the online divine hours, which are Phyllis Tickle's uh, collection of fixed hour prayer. And so you can get those at our website. And then we do vote of candles. We've got communion every week. Um, we do prophetic words in our celebration, which uh, keeps us rooted in our renewalist tradition. And we just have a strong passion for the word of God. And so uh, very Bible-based preaching. And so we attract uh, the nuns. So those who are non-affiliated, the fastest growing religious community. The N-O-N-E's, uh, not America. the N-U-N's, right? <laughs> yes, yes. N-O-N-E-S, yes. So we, we attract them. And uh, so about uh, our database tells us, I don't know, somewhere over 60% of our newcomers have no faith background whatsoever hmm. uh, when they connect with us, which uh, we're uh, just honored to connect with them uh, as representatives of Jesus. And then we also connect very well with the Duns. Yeah. So D-O-N-E-S, those who are disaffected or disaffiliated or disenchanted um, uh, in one sense with uh, what Christianity has become in the modern age. And so we see a lot of recovering Catholics and we do a really good job rehabilitating them because they often leave us and go back to the Catholic church. There you go. Um, and so we're, we, we gladly um, bless folks as they spend time with us. And so, yeah, that, that's a bit about um, our community. So, uh, you know, your bio says in left-leaning Ann Arbor. Yes. <laughs> do you, but do you find that that's true for, you know, here I'm in Austin and Austin is left leaning, but if people are driving and we have people who also, you know, drive 30 minutes, uh, do you find that people who are driving 30 minutes, you know, maybe from the exterior of town aren't necessarily left leaning? And so do you find you, uh, you're also navigating some, even some political diversity there? 
Oh, we have a lot of political diversity. So yeah. we've got Trump supporters. We had Hillary supporters, Jill Stein supporters. We have anarchists. Uh, we have people who want to deconstruct the whole system. Um, and they're all here. And yeah. we're also socially and economically diverse. So we have homeless uh, sitting next to CEOs of local companies. And um, we're ethnically diverse uh, as well. So we're about 34 to 35% people of color, something that we've worked on very diligently over sure. the last 10 years to make our church a more multi-ethnic community. And we still have a ways to go. So, you know, how do we make that multi-ethnicity also um, into a new culture so that it's just not a diversified monoculture still when you arrive? So, yeah, we definitely have to navigate uh, the sort of political diversity, and especially in what I would call the age of Trump um, as a pastor because of the sort of the sense of evangelicals and especially white evangelicals voting overwhelmingly for uh, President Trump. And so then what does that mean in a progressively left-leaning city like Ann Arbor? And then how do we sort of represent Jesus in a community uh, where a lot of our neighbors would sort of see us and say, oh gosh, you are all the wrong people. You've done this sort of horrible thing to all of us and you're to blame. And what we're trying to do is to create a community where we live in the tension of uh, we're not going to please everybody. We're not going to please the conservative sort of white evangelicalism uh, that we see uh, sort of out there as the dominant voice for ev evangelicalism in America. And we're also not going to please the liberal voice, uh, as it were. What we're trying to do is to hold very tightly to Jesus. And that means that we have to often lay down our political affiliation as we follow Jesus through the narrow gate into life. And um, so I, I try to be an equal opportunity offender. Uh, some people um, uh, might say that I favor one side or the other. And, and being an African-American male uh, in the culture, when I talk about race, it, it carries a bit more uh, power and emotion than when some of my my white counterparts might. And so we're really trying to navigate that well so that we can be a, a good representative. And one of the ways that we do that is really by trying to be the people of God in the place of God at the time of God is what I would say to the congregation. And what that looks like in practice is we're the only church in the city of Ann Arbor that does a Thanksgiving meal on Thanksgiving day uh, for anyone who needs a meal. And we attract about 200 people in our community, um, and we serve a little over 250 guests uh, on that evening. And that gives us sort of, I, I hate to use the word credibility, but it, it certainly authenticates the things that we say that we believe uh, because we're willing to be present in people's lives in a way that is helpful and transformative. And so, yeah, I think that's uh, a little bit on how we're trying to do that and navigate through that. Thanks. Well, that's, I mean, that's great context. Uh, tell me a little bit about, and I, this isn't always one of my questions. It's just my own curiosity sure. welling up here, which I already warned you about this, but sure, you grew up in Washington, D.C., and then you studied uh, computer, I, I'm trying to remember what it said in your bio, computer engineering or computer yeah, science. Computer science. Computer yep. science. Mm -hmm. 
and now you're preaching in a vineyard church in Michigan. So, what is yeah. what what is that what has that journey been for you from finding an interest in computer science to now being a yet and a little bit of the background of this? I, I've referred to this some of the podcasts, but I you know I'm bivocational, so I also, I also work part time as a web developer. So this is this is my curiosity as I I wear both these hats sure. a little bit too. So how, yeah, how how did you find your way to vineyard pastor from computer science degree? Yeah, I'll start a little earlier in D.C. So, uh, you know, growing up in the inner city in Anacostia, uh, right off of Pennsylvania Avenue. So I, you know, share that address with the president um, (laughs) in the city, but on the wrong side of the river, as it were, uh, in a predominantly black uh, community, um, all black schools. uh, And a couple of things happen. One, uh, the Federal National Mortgage Association had a scholarship program in my high school that was, uh, I guess it was called the futures program and every semester you got uh you know a 3.5 or greater in your gpa they give you a scholarship five hundred dollars towards college and then i was also a part of the i have a dream foundation started by eugene lane in new york city uh, in the 80s where he adopted i think a third or fourth grade class and promised to pay their tuition to college and so we uh, sort of rode that wave in dc and there was a a man by the name of George Kettle, who was the regional owner for Century 21, who adopted my middle school and then, um, you know, promised to pay the, t- the equivalent of the tuition for the University of the District of Columbia. I mentioned that because of two things. One, both of those organizations provided opportunities for us in a city school kids to uh, take college tours. And I started looking at colleges starting in about seventh or eighth grade. And by the end, by the time I made my selection, I'd visited a little over 100 campuses on the eastern wow. coast. So uh, from Maine to Florida. And then our West Coast trip was to the College of Worcester in, in Worcester, Ohio. We saw Hiram and we also saw um, Kent State and some other schools while we were uh, there in Ohio. And that's what got me out of D.C. to Worcester. And Worcester really was a, um, a place that I would often talk about as being home. As a matter of fact, in my office desk uh, where I'm sitting right now, I have a picture of our campus that I look up at uh, every day. Um, and it was just a really transformative time there. A lot of um, soul searching, connection with God, um, identity, vocation. And as I was sort of navigating, I grew up more Pentecostal, uh, fundamentalist maybe, um, in the apostolic movement. And so we had a very high value on the prophetic. And so when you would make big decisions like this, as opposed to maybe using the Jesuit uh, tradition of consolation and desolation, um, we used the prophets. And so the prophets heard from God and they told you what God said. And the Lord said that he was sending me to Worcester and I was to study electrical engineering. Hmm. Now there were some challenges with that because when I got to Worcester, it was a little, uh, the electrical engineering was a little harder than <laughs> I was prepared for. And my advisor freshman year advised me to consider a different major because I wasn't doing as well as I had done in high school. And I remember my chem professor, um, Dr. Powell, who really took an interest in me and ensured that I did well and passed my classes, said, uh, yeah, this is going to be a tough go for you, but if you're willing to press it out, we can see what happens. And I remember freshman year, sophomore, or uh, between semesters, walking through the Oak Grove back to my dorm, uh, having a conversation with the Lord to say, hey, I know this is what the prophet said, but would it be possible if I changed my major to something else? And then I spent some time discerning uh, 
you know, whether or not God was on board with that and felt a release. And then I switched over to computer science. And what I'm skipping or just not yet getting to is probably since about 13, I've had a calling um, in the pastorate. And what I would say when people would ask me what I wanted to be as a teenager, I'd say, I'd like to be an entrepreneur and I'd like to be a pastor. And I've been able to fulfill that. So I pastor and like you, I have a side business where I write um, software for churches around customer management and development and stuff like that. So that's really how I got um, from pastoring or sort of this call from pastoring to computer science. But I was sort of running from the call to be a pastor because, you know, in my understanding, pastors were poor and uh, they were going to be you know, sort of consigned to that. And I'd already grown up poor, so I didn't want to be poor. And so computer science seemed more lucrative. And I got a great job with IBM and worked with them for five years. But as I worked with them and got connected here at the Vineyard, which was in Milan, I really had a sense that God was creating a path and a place for me to serve. And so I decided to come on board part time as the youth um, intern. And then, um, as they say, the rest is history. So I just sort of moved up from there. So you really found your way even into the vineyard movement as somebody who was attending a vineyard church. Yes. Oh yeah. yeah. I started yeah. as an attender. Um, I, the first thing that I did at the vineyard was I served in the children's ministry, uh, which is always a difficult thing, uh, for children's ministry directors to recruit for. Mm -hmm. So I served in the third and fourth grade for two years. And then I was a middle school, um, uh, uh, volunteer uh, for a number of years before I became the intern and then became the youth pastor of the two churches when we became two churches. Gotcha. Well, thanks for sharing that. I just, I, I, oh, sure. Ju just reading your bio, I thought, well, this has to be an interesting journey here. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. Well, and it was, again, another process of discerning because once I had said yes to IBM, um, I got an invitation to come on staff sooner than I was ready. And I remember having to decide, like, well, IBM has paid a lot of money to recruit me and to move me here to Michigan. And I felt like I had some sense of obligation um, to follow through on that before I would say yes to even my vocational calling of pastoring. And it was, it wasn't without costs. I took a, I think it was an $80,000 pay cut, um, when I left IBM and started here at the church. Um, and so that, that, that was, you know, a big journey of faith as well. So, yeah. Well, you, you mentioned, the, the book you mentioned earlier, I looked it up, was The Great Emergence oh, by Phyllis Tickle. And Great. I did get like streams. one of the words right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I had read that too. And so I kind of had vague memory though. I bet, I bet I can find that. But you talked about, yes. the, you yeah. talked about the four streams. And mm -hmm. so you've already alluded to this a little bit, but e even more particularly, you know, what would you say is the role of preaching in the life of your church? What, what role does it fill? You know, I, I've I've been really thinking about that, and and I'm in my own journey around what that looks like. So, you know, I may give you a bit of a Mirandi, you know, just sort of a circular answer as I as I come uh, to my sort of response. But I think as I initially, I thought of preaching as sort of this core tenet of the gathering together of the people, and that this is the place where you would maybe do the the main work of discipleship uh, because it's it's at the center of the religious life of the community because it's the place where everyone gathers as it were mm -hmm. on a weekly basis 
And as I've been preaching uh, for these three and a half years more uh, consistently, so more weekly, I'm recognizing um, that preaching fits in as just one of many roles in the discipleship of others. And I think what I'm discovering is that the the task of preaching is really around the vision, vision casting. And what I would say there is not so much vis, vision casting for the church, uh, the local church, or even the church as an enterprise, but what does it mean for us to be the people of God and the place of God at the time of God? And I think the role that the pastor uh, gets to do, or the preacher, as it were, gets to do from the platform is to set um, a vision for what that's going to look like. And in the last 18 months or so, I, I've had I've learned a very valuable lesson in preaching. So I enjoy it. I I, I love it. Um, I love the process. I love the 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 development. I love the delivery. I love the feedback. Uh, I love all of the aspects of it. But I realize that it's a very limited tool in the discipleship model, and uh, and especially as we think of transformation. So how does preaching contribute to transformation? And as I was processing that, I'm, I'm realizing that it's a very small part. It's almost maybe the spark, uh, but it's not the place at which I feel like all of the work happens. And I wish I had m more control over how it worked, like, ooh, I could preach this really great sermon, and all of these people are going to immediately get it, and we're going to see this mm. transformation occur. And it just doesn't happen that way. Even sure. even the really good sermons that I preach, it just really doesn't happen that way. Um, it's a spark. And it creates what I like to call a Holy Spirit collision. And I talk about this whole idea of Holy Spirit collision because what I want to do in my preaching is to create opportunities for people to find space for them to consider how they're living their lives today in light of how Jesus is inviting them to live their lives and to be open to the possibility, as Greg Boyd sometimes uh, says, that we, in order for us to change, we have to believe something about ourselves. Um, and um, th this whole idea that maybe the way that I see myself in the world isn't really how I am in the world. And then we have to create space in the presence of God to begin to respond to that. And I think what preaching does is it creates the opportunity for those big conversations to occur. Hmm. Yeah, that's that's good. We are we're doing we're basing our small groups this semester at our church. Well, and going to try this going forward on our sermons, and it it's it feels really good, and it's also really difficult as the you know person who gives a sermon to sit in the small group and hear hear everybody hone in on one particular part of the sermon and you know the conversation just takes off that way because i think wait wait what about this other part that i was personally more excited about and passionate about yes <laughs> you yes. know but but i but i also hold tight to that idea well it's a conversation starter and so some of that might be you know critique of self like how do i need to be more clear with how i want to start the conversation but also just mm -hmm. recognizing no i'm just speaking into this and then let's see 
what the spirit and what the community continues with this conversation. <laughs> it's fresh in my mind because yeah, no, we have community group tonight. So, <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I know exactly what you're talking about because you'll preach a sermon. You'll say, gosh, this was my main point. And then someone will come up and share this, what I, what I oftentimes call throwaway comments, something that I didn't plan that I just said off the cuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and that will be the catalytic thing for them. And I'll be like, all right, it's between you and the Lord anyway. So I'm grateful that I was able to be a part of the conversation. And that quote that I was trying to get from Greg Boyd was, you're not really interested in believing the truth unless you take seriously the possibility that what you presently believe is not true. Hmm. And and that's that sort of piece that I was trying to get, get out of saying, uh, trying to create these worldview collisions, these Holy Spirit inspired worldview collisions so that people have an opportunity to create a little bit of space. Um, to hear that eh, this isn't quite the way that things should be. And here's an alternative way of looking at things. Yeah, that's good. Well, thanks thanks for thinking out loud your way through that answer with us. <laughs> sure, sure. <laughs> so looking at your, um, at looking at some of the sermons uh, that you've done, you know, even over the last few months, it looks like you tend to do more topical level sermons rather than necessarily textual sermons. Is that accurate or is it, do you kind of move back and forth? Yeah, I think we we're more a series based um, uh, community. So we we develop our sermons around themes. Mm -hmm. And one of the thing that we just did this uh, past year is we took a staff retreat time and we planned out the whole calendar year for 12 months. And the way that we came to that process was we uh, took some time in prayer. We invited the congregation to pray and then we took the results of our prayer, the congregation prayer, and our time uh, dedicated together as a staff team over three or four days to sort of look at and try to discern and hear what does God want to do with us as a community over the next year? And then we unpacked that and started to pull out themes. So joy came out, uh, rest came out, Sabbath came out, um, a theology of enough, you know, Brueggemann's sort of idea of abundance and and uh, God just having enough for everybody. Uh, and then we started to put that together to say, well, how do we craft that into almost a narrative? And that uh, created our year-long campaign, which we're calling You Belong. And then we're preaching sermons to sort of allow us to hit those points over the course of a year. And then we we love the lectionary, so we often will bring um, the texts uh, from the lectionary in uh, to our readings because, again, if we're you know staying true to Philistical sort of four quadrants and trying to bring the best of all of the the quadrants of the church into our expression of the church, the lectionary has a lot to teach us and uh, to guide us, and has been very helpful to us, especially as we've struggled with. You know what to do around uh, national crises, um, and especially we've had uh, quite a few of those yeah. in the past six months where we've had to respond. And so the lectionary really, really helps uh, with regard to that. So we're grateful to the Anglican and Episcopal tradition um, and the Book of Common Prayer, and and then the lectionary readings. So say, so say more about that. You know, you say the lectionary helps you respond. So you've got these texts that were assigned decades, centuries ago, and you're, you're finding they're helpful to respond to a crisis that happened six days ago. 
Yeah, I was I was actually trying to grab one off of my bookshelf so yeah. that I could <laughs> uh, reference it. But uh, when the president signed the original ban for I think it was the six or eight countries, yeah. um, we were in a series on Abraham, I think, mm. and I had already uh, sort of decided what I was planning to do, but I because of my community that I follow on Twitter. So I follow a lot of Anglicans and Episcopalians here in the U.S. Um, and seminary professors of all stripes. Um, I was just made aware of what the lectionary readings were uh, for that weekend. And it was just really great because the readings had actually lined, they lined up with where I was hoping to go in the text. And so we were just able to lean in uh, to those scriptures uh, to sort of give a little bit more support to what we were going to talk about, because we want to be uh, both present in the culture. Um, we also want to be discerning members of the culture. And we also want to sit with the community of uh, Christian faith to just say, how do we respond to these things when they unfold? Even if this thing happened six days ago, even though we're picking something that may have been uh, selected, you know, decades and, you know, in years ago, sure. that they, they all do flow into the stream in these very surprising ways. And that has happened, I, I would dare say that's happened three or four times in the past year where uh, some crisis was happening, the lectionary reading um, had a text that was responding to it in some way. And it just, it, it you might call it happenstance, uh, being sort of a Pentecostal, I'd say maybe more, it's God's sort of ordaining of those things to come together. Mm -hmm. And, but pulling from these different streams in ways that, you know, would be surprising to people. Yeah. All right. Well, I was just curious when you said that, I thought, well, what is, is he talking supernatural or is he talking? Yeah. So, um, well, talk about your, I mean, it looks like you preach maybe 75 to 80% of the time, I'm guessing, just from looking at the, so you preach most weeks. So what is your, what does your timeline look like for putting together a sermon in the midst of, you know, also leading the staff at a church? Yeah, it, it's a lot. Of, it's a lot of fun. So I, I think um, if we are starting a week cold, so if I'm just starting a new series or I'm getting back from vacation, my uh, preparation process starts Tuesday. So I uh, try to write a, a full manuscript hmm. on Tuesday. And I started about in the late afternoon, early evening, and go to about midnight. And I actually do my sermon writing on campus, on U of M's campus, um, um, at a coffee shop where undergrads sort of hang out. And I'm an extrovert, so I like people. Excuse me. And so I get a lot of energy uh, from being around people. And one of the things that I've also realized is that um, as I'm writing sermons, the Lord has been using uh, Deb, Deb Hirsch said something uh, at one of the Missio Alliance gatherings. She said, where you stand affects what you see. And that is stuck with me. And other people have, have said things along those lines. Um, and as I was sort of thinking about the crafting of my sermons, I often used to do them in my office. It's a, a space I've designed and is very comfortable. It has everything that I need. And I realized that there's a way in which I can craft this sermon for a community 
that I'm asked to lead and to direct and sort of be disconnected from it at the same time. And so one of the things I've done to sort of discipline myself is to start to write my drafts outside. So among in and among and with the people that I'd hope to reach with the gospel. And so that's that takes me out on campus on Tuesdays. And so I write a draft, a full manuscript. I've in the last three years had to learn that my 4,000 word manuscripts are too long. Mm. So <laughs> I have to, uh, I can't write a manuscript that's longer than 2,000 words just for my own sake because of my um, sort of black preaching um, affect and style because I do add extemporaneously sure. <laughs> uh, to my sermon as I preach. And so even though I might craft a 2,000 word sermon, I might deliver maybe a three to 4,000 word sermon. And we are trying to constrain our preaching time to 30 minutes. And so I um, have had to really work time in and time out to sort of hone that down. So I just do a full draft of what I'm going to talk about on Tuesday. And then I have a process of um, review where I send my uh, first manuscript draft out to a team of sermon readers. Hmm. And so I've recruited eh, about a dozen people who uh, are from all walks of life in our church. So I have a retired EPA engineer. I have a single mom. I have a graduate student. I have a embedded computer science engineer in one of the automotives. I have a writer, uh, like a, a writer's aide at the university in one of the major departments, and a host of other people. That I, I at one point I had a PhD candidate in economics who read, wow. and I remember making an offhanded comment about. Um, how quickly you can make money in the stock market or how easy it would be. And she wrote me a note and she's like, my friends who are working 20 hour days would disagree that it's <laughs> very easy to make money. Right. And it was a throwaway comment and I hadn't even spent any time, you know, sort of processing it. And, you know, I, I've invested and did that in high school because I went to a magnet school for business and finance. And, and so I was just sort of talking off the cuff, but she helped me realize something very important is when I say things that, maybe I haven't processed or thought through the people who are hearing them who are in those fields can be turned off because yeah. they know yeah. that this is not the reality. And so if I haven't taken the time to investigate what they do, why should they listen in some ways? You know, I don't know that people are actually asking that question, but she certainly made me aware of it. And um, it was, it's been very, very helpful. So then the readers give me feedback on Wednesday and Thursday and then I revise on Friday and Saturday. And then I send another draft out. And the readers who really love me and are either retired or bored <laughs> will read the second draft. And they'll give me like a final, like, did you mean to say this? Or this looks good. I would push in on this point, that type of thing. And then um, Sunday mornings, I am revising pretty much till the service starts um, just because, and it's not, I, I don't think I'm doing it for a perfectionism. I think I'm, I'm doing it to try to ensure that not just that I'm giving my best or that I'm doing my best, but that the, the things that I've chosen to include um, still matter 
because when you are doing this writing, it's a very vulnerable place that one puts oneself in as a as a as a minister as a preacher and i try to be as transparent as i can be in the pulpit so my commitment to my congregation is to always tell them the truth um in the pulpit and so i i always want to make sure that what i'm including is worthy to be in and then um there's one little part that is sort of a fun thing for me i have a young congregant his name's zeke and he's about three, no, how old is he now? I think he's five. And for three years, he stops into my office uh, Sunday morning, uh, right before the service starts, and to say hello. And one of the things that I've disciplined myself to do, even though I'm always editing right up until the time I give the sermon, is to just pause and to engage with Zeke, ask him how his week was, uh, find out when insights, or oftentimes he has show and tell things to bring with me. And I actually find that to actually be an important part of my uh, sermon process because I'm telling a story. I'm telling the story of the whole community and I'm telling Zeke's story as well. And our interaction, Zeke and I's interaction in my office during that sort of last stretch before I give my sermon uh, have often come into the actual uh, delivery of the sermon hmm. um, throughout uh, the several uh, sermons. So I've, I've probably mentioned him three or four times. And um, so, yeah, so th there's this sort of communal approach that I have to it. So that was probably a really long, no, uh, detailed response. So I, I love the overview of it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And the feedback thing is, is great, too, just that you've invited, you know, I, I've uh, there have been a number of people who talk about how they invite other people into hearing and critiquing the sermon. But I, I don't know that I've had anybody else who says that early in the week, they have a manuscript that they send out to you know, that many people in the congregation. I'm a little bit in awe that you <laughs> that you describe yourself as an extrovert and that you start on Tuesday and you sit down, you know, for eight or nine hours and end up with a manuscript. So what is what does Tuesday night look like for you? Like how how do you get all the way to a manuscript by midnight Tuesday? <laughs> He's laughing. I, yeah, I am laughing because I, I don't actually know. I mean, that, I mean that, that's the that's the truth. You know, you start with a blank page, and and almost every week. And this is, I I hope what I'm saying. I feel like what I'm saying is true. So I hope it's true. Um, is I I often come to it and and I'm like, oh gosh, what am I going to say this week? You know, where are we going? Even though I have a series, even though I often have scriptures that have been pre-selected or or in mind for where I'm going and I I sit down and write I mean one of the the coaches that I received uh, that I had early on in my sermon crafting uh, trajectory said uh, when you do your manuscript just write a full manuscript don't don't do any editing just sort of take it from conception to completion as best you can and um, that's uh, effectively what I do, I, I borrow um, uh, a lot. So I, I try to be reading during the week. Mm -hmm. So what I'm sort of hiding is I I try to listen to, and, and, and anyone hearing this and certainly thinking about emulating it, I would say uh, don't. Um, <laughs> but if anything I say is of value to you, certainly take it. But I, I try to read a about two to three books a week. Okay. Um, so this might be fiction and nonfiction. Yeah. Or and so I'm I'm somewhat in three or four books at a time. 
I uh, am a, I'm not a millennial, I'm a Gen Xer um, who sort of presents as a millennial because I uh, am uh, much of a technologist. And so I, I tend to rely a lot on Twitter. Twitter has been a very, it's been a font of uh, creativity. Hmm. Uh, Rob Bell has been, uh, whether people love him or uh, only like him, he's been a very uh, helpful person for me uh, in terms of crafting my skill as a preacher. He did yeah. a conference, Poets, Preachers, and yeah. uh, Prophets, uh, a few years ago that I was at. And he just really talked about learning how to exegete our culture and our community and ourselves. And so he taught me to pay attention to things. So like you're at a parking lot and you see a row of SUVs and they're all like aligned and parked. And he's like, you know, you see something like that, pay attention to it, take a picture of it. And so, uh, you know, I've done that. And so that has created um, creativity. And so I try to uh, keep index cards and a pen in my jeans um, all the time so I can write down things. Um, so, yeah, so I think that's it. I, I really love culture. So I spend a lot of time in popular culture. I watch a lot of TV, uh, read, you know, news, Twitter, social media, that type of thing. And I allow all of that to influence me as I come into the sermon writing process. So it's not, I don't know that it's very complete to just say I sit with a blank page sure, and then sure. have to create this thing from no nothing. Obviously, that's not the case. I'm I'm drawing on my lived experience, my under my engagement with scripture, my engagement with Holy Spirit, um, and the engagement with the culture when I sit down on Tuesday. And I'm a huge procrastinator. So and I, I know these things might be at odds with each other, but it's actually true. My admin texted me to schedule some meetings for Friday. And she was like, sorry to interrupt your, your sermon writing. I was like, that's okay. I'm already procrastinating. <laughs> and, and so I was this just sort of sitting there. Yeah. I was just sitting there last night sort of saying, okay, we're, we're in an Advent series. I'm focused on John the Baptist and his prepare the way. And I'm uh, sort of thinking about what does it mean for us to create room for God to come? And this week I want to focus on decluttering so both physically but also spiritually and mentally and i was just really struggling with like oh how am i going to bring all of this uh together and there was this great study uh, that was done i think out of stanford where they interviewed 32 families over 10 years to just evaluate how americans live and they did heat maps and they cataloged everything and they interviewed all the people and then they wrote a book and that was very very um helpful for the sermon because it brought out these things like you know because we have too much stuff it it, it creates elevated stress hormones uh because we can't simplify um we have clean and dirty laundry stored all over our house mm. on average the average american has like 2500 possessions in just three rooms of their home space not including clothes and 75 percent of our driveways are full which means we can't park our cars in them and so now seeing that study um out of stanford or wherever it was from maybe berkeley or stanford and then now being able to tie that into when john says if anyone who has two shirts uh, should share one with one who doesn't have any, I can bring the reality of the culture 
into the communication from the scripture to say, you know, even John, even though John lived 2000 years ago, he understands our modern experience of life and that now we're struggling with how do we maintain all these possessions and that prevents us from having enough space to connect with God. And then that opens up a pathway to begin to exegete that text and then uh, give them practical tips because we use practical tips in our sermons as engagements sure. with the scripture. So when you're, when you're reading a book like that, or you, you know, you talked about the note cards or take a picture, do you catalog all these somehow so that you can go back to them? Or is it just as you sit down Tuesday, what comes to mind when you start writing? You're laughing. All right, so <laughs> again, I'm laughing, yeah. So I'm, yeah, yeah. I'm going to tell you the ideal and then the real. So the ideal <laughs> is I, I catalog it all, all right? So I actually, in every book that I read, I highlight and make notes in the margins, and I give that book to my admin, and my admin um, will take the paragraph before, the one that I've highlighted, and the one after, and then create a note in a program like Evernote uh, so that it's a keyword index so I can search for things. And then she will transcribe my uh, column notes alongside of that so that I'm able to sort of remember it. And then uh, again, I don't even know if I like myself as I'm, as I'm saying this, but I do have a really good memory. Yeah. And so I'm able to recall things uh, very quickly. Um, my wife, who's a speech language pathologist, will say I'm uh, an auditory learner. And so because I'm able to hear things maybe once or twice, I can um, catalog that and, and, and access that very quickly and synthesize that information. And so I do a lot of synthesis. And I, again, extrovert, talking to people, um, that's the way I connect with God is sort of in the debate and in the exchange. And so I think uh, that benefits me. So I'll, I'll give that to you. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. Um, all right, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna stray again off my normal questions here a little bit, just cause sure. I, wanna, I wanna take all of this back to something you said way earlier, which is, you know, you, you said like 60% of people who come to Vineyard Ann Arbor, and, and I'll tell you this, I don't know where you're at time-wise, but I'll, I'll start wrapping up after this question. Oh, uh, no, we're fine. We're, we're okay. fine. I have time for you because okay. we uh, we can at least go another 25, 30 minutes because okay. we spent the 20 yeah, getting that's it good. all set up. Well, I won't have 25, 30 minutes, but, that's, sure. <laughs> but I appreciate that very much. Sure. Um, but you mentioned, you know, 60% and, you know, our come from no faith background. So I'm curious what it looks like for you, you know, when you talk about sitting at a coffee shop on uh, the, on campus there, um, what, it, what is the process you go through even to think through, like, how are you going to speak to somebody who's walking in the door with no church background or hasn't been in church in 30 years versus somebody who's, you know, been deeply entrenched in a vineyard church for 30 years, what's it look like for you to try to make sure that you speak to people in all different places as you're doing this prep? For me, it's about in loving the culture. Um, I love the culture. I don't like the empire. And um, I make that distinction because oftentimes as pastors, we rail against things from the platform, right? We right. can see the effects of too much TV on relationships. We can see the effects of uh, the consumption of pornography on relationships. We can see the effects of alcohol um, on relationships. And we will skip steps sometimes for folks. And we will just say, 
just avoid it, you know, like don't do it. It, it. It's easier. Your life will be better. Everyone will be happier. And part of what I've tried uh, to discipline myself in is sort of looking at what I'm trying to communicate through a lens of um, why does this matter to somebody? It's just simple questions. And uh, I think Jesus has a lot to offer us and his way of going about reshaping and reforming and restructuring our lives is countercultural. It, it has always been countercultural. It was countercultural in his day and it continues to be today. It goes against what I call the empire. And that's the pervasive power that sort of infuses everything yeah. that, uh, that surrounds us if people don't have a concept of what I might be getting at with the empire. And so I was writing, I was preaching a sermon and I, I forget what the topic was on, um, and I, I could try to look it up, but whatever it was on, uh, something unfolded in front of me, which uh, helped make the point of the sermon, which was I was in Starbucks, I uh, on campus around students, you know, they've got Macintosh computers, Beats headphones. Um, they're at the number one public research university uh, in the university or in the in the US. Uh, so they're at in an elite school. And I watched two students steal uh, cereal bars out of Starbucks. Mm. And, and it, it created sort of this um, sort of question for me, which was there was something that I was processing in one of my sermons where there was this sort of this call uh, from Jesus for us, you know, being the people of God in all of the space, you know, uh, honoring, um, doing the right thing. Uh, I forget the the very specific task that I was getting at uh, in the sermon, but what I what I remember was sort of sitting there and having to wrestle with, well, what am I going to do? How how do I respond um, in this? In this space, do I turn them in? Do I um, pay for it? Um, do I uh, ignore it, turn an eye? And then that gives me an opportunity to see the situation, relate it to the text, and then present it to the people in the congregation to say, well, what would you have done in this situation? And so now they're entering into the conversation with me. And so any of us can enter into that conversation. There's no barrier now to entering into what do you do when you see somebody doing something that's not above board? How do you respond? Do you feel like it's your obligation uh, to speak up? And, and now I can have this sort of dialogue. The congregation's with me because they've seen um, – yeah, so I just I was looking for it while I was talking to you. So it was I was in the Beatitudes and I was recasting blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And what I um, did was I sort of restated it to say blessed are the losers, those who couldn't figure it out for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are the spiritual zeros, those who have no clue, theirs is the kingdom of God. So that was sort of a, a restating of it. And then what I did is then I broke into this story of seeing those two uh, students steal the power bars. And um, they used the crowd because it was a long line uh, to protect themselves from being um, seen. And then I asked the question, I said, 
you know, have I become a Pharisee because I'm now standing in judgment of them and I'm looking down on their immoral behavior. What do I do now? Do I confront them? Do I pay for their stolen bar? Do I keep writing my sermon and ignore it? Or do I announce the good news that the kingdom of God is available to them? And it got a chuckle out of the congregation because of how I presented it. And now everyone's sort of in that situation because everyone in the congregation has been in a situation where they've seen someone do something immoral. And they've had to decide, how do I respond to that? So speaking to those who are what we like to call near and far is something that we value in every sermon. And one of the tools that we love is um, uh, Lowry's book, um, The Homiletical Plot, because he sets things up um, around the resolution of a story. And so what I have found has been the best tool for me to use in preaching to those who are near and far is to use uh, Lowry's homiletical uh, plot uh, as the tool. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, as preaching books go, I think that one's probably been brought up as much as any other book. Um, oh, that's good. And I remember reading it long ago, you know, and I have a vague memory of it, but it, I just keep thinking almost every time it's brought up, I think I need to return to that book. But yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's mentioned quite a bit. Um, well, with you know, on that note, what are some other, what are some other books, whether they're you know reference books or just books about preaching, or maybe not even books about preaching, but have been really helpful for you in forming how you think about preaching or how you preach? Yeah, so I think um, uh, what I'll do is I'll start with the easier media. So there are a number of podcasts that I love. So Fresh Air, uh, Terry Gross is a great interviewer, yep. and so she can really bring stuff out of people and um so she she's been sort of a a coach in senses of like you know querying uh content like how do you how do you get the most out of a content type of thing so just listening to her interviews processing her interviews and the topics that she brings up another podcast is on being uh, on being with uh, Kristen Tippett I think yeah yeah and she uh, just has a uh a nice reach of uh, connecting with people. So I spent a lot of time there. I have, you know, I, I do like Rob Bell. I like his preaching style. So I've listened to a lot of his sermons um, online, as well as some of my favorite theologians uh, like Dr. Ra or N.T. Wright and mm-hmm. Greg Boyd. Um, Brian Zahn, who's out in, I think he's in Missouri. Yep. Um, I've had him on the podcast. So, yeah, he's really fantastic. Um, he, his, uh, I think I had started talking about Empire before he did, but if it's not the case and I borrowed it from him, I'm grateful to him for that <laughs> <laughs> because he has really done a really great job of uh, helping with that. Um, I have the Logos Bible software. Yeah, yeah. I have my my dad is a pastor and he had it and so you know you just basically do what your parents do often and so i i use that uh for sermon stuff you know words and looking up things and i have a, a number of commentaries that i um prefer i mean nt writes probably my favorite new testament scholar yeah and so and, and jesus scholar so a lot of uh his he he's just had such a formative uh, impression on me and my understanding of Jesus and got to meet him at Missio Alliance this past year. And so that was sort of a highlight for me. Yeah. But then I'm also trying to uh, connect with um, 
uh, minority uh, theologians because one of the challenges um, as an African-American is that there is not a, a wealth of um, African-American theologians. And so I'm having to uh, because they're sort of behind in terms of having access to publishing houses and seminaries and things like that in terms of getting their content out. So a lot of times their stuff is newer. Um, and I well, I won't get into some bad advice I got, but um, Delator, uh, I think Miguel Delator in his book, uh, Liberating Jonah, was uh, very helpful. And so I use him for sort of theology from below mm -hmm. um, kind of mindset is how do we uh, sort of decolonize our theology. And um, I try to bring that uh, into play and then just popular culture. So I try to pay very close attention to uh, popular culture because if there's anything that our congregants are being shaped and formed by, it's the liturgy of the empire, and that is mediated through television. Yeah, and so we need to be conversant. I don't know that we have to be connoisseurs of, but we certainly need to be conversant with uh, what's going on in the popular culture, so that we might be able to um, relay things in a way that people can engage with. And so those are some of the uh, resources that I use. And I feel that tension in my own consumption habits. You know, I, I'm a, I'm an avid reader like you are and, and I enjoy television too. And so I, I often find myself, especially in the evening feeling mixed between, okay, I've got a little bit of time here. Finally got the kids to bed. I have 45 minutes before I'm going to be passed out myself, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. um, and wanting to, take in more shows just to be connected, you know, and, and aware of what's shaping us culturally. And at the same time, loving books and feeling like there's a, a value and a power to me engaging the ideas that I get. So I, I just live in the tension of books versus TV all the time mm -hmm. for, as a preacher, right. As the life of a preacher. And, yep. you know, how can I speak into um, our, 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 our church community through my experience of both of these areas? Yep. And let me throw out um, a couple more things that, uh, on that. Um, one is audiobooks have been very helpful. Yeah. And so uh, anytime I talk to people, if they don't get distracted by audio, I really recommend like an Audible subscription. Yep. And not that, I don't know if you have sponsors for your podcast, but <laughs> <laughs> um, but. Uh, Audible, I've been a member for almost 10 years or so yeah. um, before Amazon bought it. And it's just been really great because I love washing dishes. Uh, that's uh, huh. I try to play with uh, Brother Lawrence's um, Practicing the Presence of God. And one of the some of my most powerful God encounters have been at the sink washing dishes. Yeah. And that might be listening to music or it might be listening to a book or it might just be being silent and um so audiobooks are great and i know now that amazon if if people don't have uh, you know fundamental issues with amazon but now that they own audible um and they have the kindle you can get a kindle reader and then add the audio component for cheap yeah and it'll keep sync where you are and then you can switch between them so that's something um i confer to people um Kenneth Bailey's uh, Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes yeah. has been a very foundational book as well. And our congregation has really appreciated his commentary. And then um, James Byron Smith or Brian Smith's yeah, yeah. Um, 
series, The Good and Beautiful, uh, Life, God, and Community, and met him again at Missio Alliance this past uh, uh, spring. And so it was really good to talk to him. Um, and then Lisa Sharon Harper, The Very yeah. Good Gospel. Um, so yeah, those I'm, I'm trying to create uh, we actually even have like a bibliography of like who our influencers are. Cause we get a lot of people who come to us from uh, different church backgrounds and traditions. And they'll often say things like, I have never heard this before. Hmm. And we'll say, well, we're not the originators. Right, We've right. like woven together Phyllis Tickle and John Wimber and N.T. Wright and, you know, this other obscure theologian. And that's what we're presenting to you. And, and that's been um, really fun to do. Um, but it's also... It, I will admit that it's distracting. And what I mean by that is when people come to you and, and when we do have people who come with an embedded faith tradition, they often are distracted by the things that they take for granted. So being in a um, progressively left-leaning city like Ann Arbor, not everybody agrees that the Bible is authoritative. And so we have to often make a case for the authoritative nature of the scripture. And so if you even just create space for that, some people hear things that you're not saying. And um, so anyway, so we, we try to be open. And then we also play with the social sciences. So like Brene Brown has been super helpful. Sure. Um, um, daring greatly and braving the wilderness, sort of that whole authenticity and... Um, vulnerability uh, that she has. And then Anne Lamott, yeah. she is a hoot. Yeah, <laughs> so if, if, if people aren't reading her, I, I would really recommend uh, that they read her. She just has such a folksy, um, uh, unpretentious way of talking about God that I think is very refreshing. So. Yeah. Yeah. And if, uh, yeah. And, and she talks about a way, she talks about God and her faith in a way that's so accessible and offensive to many, I'm sure, but so accessible. It's very offensive. So, so even, <laughs> it, even if you find her offensive, you know, recognizing that in our culture, you know, people listen and hear what she has to say and, you know, trying to live in the tension of that, even in your own sermons. Well, Donnell, uh, uh, thank you so much. Um, I'd love to, you know, you mentioned Twitter and why don't you give us uh, just a few places people can find you online, whether Twitter or your church's website, talk about some of those links. <laughs> sure. Thanks for that. Um, so um, if you want the unvarnished me, you can follow me on Twitter and that's just at Donnell. So D-O-N-N-E-L-L. -L. Wow. And that that's an intersection of race, technology, politics and faith. So I'm going to bring all those things together in my my Twitter feed. And what I tell my congregation is not to follow me on Twitter and to follow me instead on Facebook, because that <laughs> is the that is the filter to me. So on Facebook, I'm, I'm more measured. Um, I'm more deliberate. <laughs> I do more research as I post things or, re, you know, repost things. And that's just my first dot, my last name, I think. So like Facebook.com. Yeah. Slash Donnell dot white. But I'm not accessible publicly. So like you have to be inside Facebook in order to see my profile. And then uh, our church website, the easiest web address is a2vc.org. Um, and the main address is annarborvineyard.org, but people often forget the E in vineyard. 
And so we have oh, a, yeah. a redirect, yeah, from the a2vc.org that comes into our website. And um, other than that, just email me or call me. <laughs> and we post, I post all of my manuscripts um, online uh, the week after I give them. So there's about three years, I think, currently of all of our manuscripts of the sermons up. Another benefit of manuscripting. It is. Yeah. <laughs> and they get edited after I give them. So they're edited before and then edited after, which is really nice. I have a my administrative assistant, uh, Jamie Bott, she's uh, a former English teacher, and um, she is just fantastic. I, I, I would dare say as much as anything people like about me is, you know, a part of me, I think there's a huge part of her voice in what I'm doing, because she will often read my script my sermons and say, what are you talking about? <laughs> and, and it's so clear to me, but it's not to her. And so then um, I have to go back and revise that. And then finally, my wife, my wife, um, who's a speech language pathologist, has, has, was my first editor and first reader of my sermons. And um, she's always helped me to ensure that I'm communicating clearly and uh, consistently and um, and somewhat simply, because I, I tend to overcomplicate things sometimes because I love the debate. And that's not always helpful when you're trying to convey things in a way that is accessible to everybody. <laughs> of course, yeah. Well, well thanks so much, Donnell. I, I really yeah, appreciate, I appreciate you the, the opportunity space. to yeah. talk to you. Thank you, Donnell. As always, too, thank you to all of you for listening. Uh, as you might have expected, as we're outgrowing our prior server because of traffic, uh, that means even some of the costs associated with the podcast are going up. So if you'd like to support what we're up to here, you can go to SermonSmith. I'm sorry. No, you can go to Patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash SermonSmith and pledge to support per episode. So you only get charged for uh, episodes that I actually produce. So you can do that. Um, and also, uh, of of course, feel free to continue spreading the word. Obviously, this is happening because our subscriber base has been growing. But spread the word on Twitter, on Facebook. Um, uh, reviews on iTunes are always helpful as well. Thanks so much, friends. <laughs>